So the title of the talk tonight is Coming Home to the Place We Never Left. So the title implies several things. One, one is that there's a place that we can, um, has a sense of home, home base, coming home. Um, it also implies that somehow we found ourselves um, away from home, adrift or um, on a journey that we don't know how we undertook and how, how we got so far away from home. And it also implies that um, there's the possibility of returning and uh, being astonished when we get there that we never actually left home. But that's actually our potential experience in this lifetime and really what the spiritual journey is all about. So I thought it useful just to um, look at how that, how that journey away from ourselves apparently happens, um, what that turnaround point is, and then the journey back home and what that's about and what the value of that returning home is. So when we were first born, I talked about this often, um, there was a state of grace, a state of unity for maybe a year, maybe longer, um, immediately after birth. And during that time, we were clearly conscious, clearly aware, taking it all in, very curious, not understanding what any of it was, um, but fully present in a way that was um, just open. Open. There, it wasn't open from the sense of I am being open uh, because there was no sense of I during that time. There wasn't um, the ability to self-reflect upon ourselves as a separate being. We can see that as a young infant, maybe at the age of, I don't know, 10 months, a year, um, maybe a bit older, when they first discover uh, that they are somehow separate there. And they're quite intrigued by that, finding their own foot and realize that it's, uh, there's an in internal sensation for that, um, you know, discovering perhaps their face in the mirror. So there is, there is a point where that begins to shift, but for some period of time, there's just this empty openness to the outside world, just taking it all in. And that is uh, a state of unity at, at, at oneness with the environment that the infant finds themselves in. And then that begins to change, of course. They, they learn that uh, the sounds that adult people make have meaning. Um, they learn that they have a name. Uh, they learn that they can demand and get things. They don't uh, need to depend totally on gestures and crying and they can actually express what they want. And it goes from there. Um, and that sense of being fascinated uh, with the outside world and uh, the introduction of speech and concepts uh, begins us, uh, to take us down a path 
where that becomes more and more prominent. And then as we go through our schooling, we learn um, you know, to be aware of ourselves as a separate person. You know, we're desperate, desperately searching for an identity, any identity, as long as we can um, have something that feels uh, like we can present ourselves in uh, the situation that we find ourselves growing up. Um, so there's all kinds of strategies to do that, you know, ways to, to rebel, but it's all, all about creating a sense of separate self. And there's, we were taught in high school biology class that our brain produces consciousness. Our brain cells do that, it's one of their functions. Um, and we never really question that, you know, so throughout our growing up during this, this phase, maybe first 20 years or so, no, no one ever mentioned that this innate ability of awareness was unique, uh, uh, extraordinary. Um, it was just never actually mentioned at all. I mean, even having gone to, you know, some of the best schools in the country, nobody ever mentioned it, never, not once. It was just sort of, just taken for granted, it was so common, everybody had this ability to be aware that um, nobody thought it was worthy of, of any mention and nobody did. Nobody said when we were growing up, oh, um, when you're out um, you know, playing with your friends, don't forget to remember your essential awareness. Nobody, nobody said that, you know, no teachers, no parents. It was just all taken for granted. And um, we eventually forgot all about it. We didn't forget it um, intentionally. Uh, it was just uh, neglected in a sense. It was um, still fully functional, but we just didn't pay it any attention. The outside world was so fascinating that all our uh, focus was outward. Everything that our parents and teachers were teaching us was about the outside world and interacting with others and learning things, how to behave, how to act, what was um, important to um, succeed in the world, you know, become an adult. Nobody <laughs> reminded us ever that all along there was this awareness present. So in the high school biology class, this concept of the brain cells produce consciousness was never questioned. Um, nobody had the nerve to say, you know, how do you know that? So the, the assumption goes something like this, that um, how we view the world primarily is uh, through the senses of sight and uh, hearing. Um, those happen as portals in our head. The brain is in our head and therefore consciousness must arise there, sort of the um, proof by proximity. You know, it's in the same neighborhood, so it must be the, the cause of consciousness. Um, you know, the other, the other argument would be that um, 
if a person is brain dead, they're not able to function anymore. Um, therefore, uh, the brain cells that just died must have been the source of that consciousness. But the alternative is um, equally possible that it is that awareness itself, that life energy itself that is um, enlivening these body minds. And when that's withdrawn from this body, the brain along with everything else dies. I mean, that's an equally plausible argument, but um, that argument is rarely raised, but it is something worthy of consideration. It makes actually all the difference in the world, whether the, um, the ultimate source of awareness is this physical body-mind or whether the reverse is actually true. That awareness is the fundamental source of life and this body-mind is an expression of that. So as you know, we you know, get, manage to get through teenagehood somehow and uh, into adulthood, our sense of identity you know, has to manage and take on other characteristics like relationships and um, careers and um, how to pay the rent and all kinds of other things that um, require our attention. So we, in a sense, we go further and further afield from this source of um, open-heartedness, uh, awareness that we once were. And we tend to forget all about that. You know, and as we move out into the world, there's the sense of expansion that's interesting. You know, it's, it's uh, challenging. Um, you know, there's some rewards for it. There's also some fear involved, like, you know, will I get hurt? Um, you know, will people like me, respect me? You know, so there's this movement, but also this hesitation. So we can find ourselves venturing out into the world and having, having that experience. We've all had that um, history, that, that, uh, that life of moving out into the world to a certain degree um, and having had, uh, having had those heartbreaks um, having had those uh, pleasures, having been hurt, having had joy. I mean, all of that is a part of that experience of moving out. So there's the um, mythological story of the Garden of Eden. Uh, perhaps you've heard of it. It is... Uh, whether you're Christian or not, it, it has a relevance to what we're talking about here um, because what propelled them out of that state of grace was um, uh, being induced to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was, that was the, that was what propelled them out, out of this state of grace. But isn't that exactly what we all did? 
So if we look at the story, not as a, certainly not as a historical factor, um, but as a uh, instructive teaching in terms of uh, that sense of movement in our own life, where at one time, as very young children, we did exist in a state of unity, a state of grace, and we were propelled out of that by what? Fascination with the world, you know, eating of the tree of knowledge, you know, that's what pulled us out of that state. You know, just the, the world was so alluring, so fascinating that we were drawn into it um, to explore it. Right? So the, I mean, the other aspect of that story is the uh, loss of innocence, right? Suddenly we became conscious that we were a separate self, separate from the other person. But isn't that also what happened to us in this lifetime? You know, there was a time very early on where we had no sense of separation. We were just fully open, fully receptive, fully present for whatever was happening. And then we became very self-conscious about being a separate person. We lost that, that innocence. And so that sense of separation persists, you know, that longing for unity, um, you know, whether it be with the, another person or with all. So the story is, is relevant, but the story, the story has been tainted with the idea that somehow that's a mistake. Somehow it was um, a mistake to have um, eaten of this tree of knowledge. But is that, is that true? I mean, this movement out into the world is something that we, we all have done. And um, to say that somehow that shouldn't have happened or that was a mistake, um, you know, that the, the preferable thing would have been to remain in a state of innocence, but that state of innocence isn't full, right? It's not complete. It's, it's innocent, but um, infantile also, right? It's just, not having yet having had that experience of what the world is, what the world of form can offer and what its limitations are. So that's what we learn this this movement outward, you know, journeying outward, experiencing life. And I would suggest that that, that movement outward is, um, is valuable. You know, it's important to do that wholeheartedly, whatever that looks like. You know, it wouldn't, you know, we, I don't think most of us would want to be on our um, deathbed and say to ourselves, well, you know, at least I played it safe. You know, I got this far and didn't get hurt too bad. Or would we rather feel like, you know, I lived life fully. Yes, I got hurt along the way. And yes, there was joy. And yes, there was this incredible um, outflowing of life in all its flavors. And I got to experience that wonderful. The other, the other value of living fully in that sense is that um, 
And we gather information, <laughs> information about how that works, how the world works, how the world of form works, the beauties of it, and also the limitations of it. And there comes a point where we've gathered enough data, you know, where we've gotten to the point where more, more experiences, just for the sake of experiences, um, are no longer um, as fulfilling as they once were. You know, that seeking pleasure um, isn't quite as satisfying as it used to be. And uh, most people's solutions for that is more, bigger, better. I know I've told this story before, but it's such a great story. I can't help myself here. But um, Patty and I were uh, just before a retreat at, um, in Rhinebeck, New York at Garrison. Um, we were down in the little town just waiting for the light to change. And um, beside us also waiting for the light were three, maybe 35-ish uh, young businessmen, nicely dressed business suits. And um, one of them distinctly said, and this is a quote, if I had 20 million, I'd be happy. So what's interesting about that is, uh, first of all, they won't, you know, they want more. But what's interesting about that is you wouldn't even say something like that unless you already had a couple million to your name, right? You wouldn't say it if you had $100 to your name. You might say, well, gosh, if I had 500, I could pay the rent this month. So a statement like that is just, it, it was just, um, so perfectly uh, illustrative of what we're talking about here of um, not finding fulfillment in um, more, more pleasure, more fame, more wealth, more security, more power. All of those things are a desperate attempt to fill up a sense of inner void. And the problem with it is that inner void can't be filled by uh, the material world, it just can't. And so it's like eating junk food. <laughs> it doesn't, it, it feels like it's filling you up, but it's not actually nourishing. So you're always left wanting more. So at some point, um, some people, clearly not, all, but some people begin to wonder, you know, if this movement outward is really all that there is, you know, our, our identity that we work so hard to take on suddenly begins to feel like a, a tight fitting suit, like it's um, no longer serving us, it feels more like a prison than, um, than a shield. <laughs> And we can raise the question, you know, is, is this all life is about? You know, it doesn't, doesn't, we don't have to go through decades of that outward um, seeking to realize that. Some people are really fortunate and can um, sort of play out the implications in their mind and save themselves a few decades and, um, come to a teaching like this at, in their 20s, rather than, you know, waiting a few decades. That's wonderful. 
Um, but for the rest of us, you know, it can take uh, a considerable amount of outward seeking before we're willing to turn around at some point. You know, for a lot of people, uh, you know, ruling despair works. You know, for some people, alcoholism is something that gets our attention to the degree that we're willing to look in a different direction. You know, sometimes it takes um, a slap in the face, maybe a punch in the face, you know, from a messy divorce or, a, you know, unfair firing from a job or loss of a friend, life-threatening illness, death of a loved one. That may be enough of a shock to cause us to reassess at that point. So there can be a, a turnaround at some point and how and when that happens is a, always been something that's been curious to me. What sets us uh, on this path. Um, I mean, we can call it a spirituality quest, but it's not really spiritual. It's, it's just about life, you know, what makes sense about life itself and uh, the journey to really understand that. But what sets a person down that road to make that turn. And so it's almost like, you know, we throw a ball up into the air and it's still going up in the air, but it's um, the force of gravity is slowing it down even as the ball is continuing to rise and it reaches some point of apogee, its highest point, and then it starts to come back to earth. So that, I'd suggest what's pulling us back back to a sense of home is, is a deep longing, a longing for something that um, we may not even be able to pinpoint all that well, but it's something um, that we have all experienced at one time in our life and then, and then forgot about out of neglect. You know, we didn't willfully forget it. We didn't willfully put it aside. We would have had to recognize what it was uh, to do that. It was just neglected, taken for granted. And um, since our focus was outward, um, you know, we never, never paid it much mind. And it sort of atrophy, didn't actually atrophy, but our uh, awareness of it certainly did. So at this point of turnaround, uh, we might uh, be fortunate to hear that um, there is a resolution to this inner um, inner emptiness. There, there is a resolution. That's that's good news. <laughs> you know, so if we hear about that possibility, you know, we we actually have a choice. I mean, we could say mm, that feels like sounds like too much work, and it's not certain. Therefore, I'd rather just enjoy my time here and um, eat, drink, and be merry. And, um, you know, when 
old age sickness and death comes along, you know, I'll, I'll deal with that then. So that's, you know, a lot of people uh, choose that option, right? You know, the other possibility is to become curious about the possibility of an alternative to that. Become curious about the possibility of uh, finding what, if anything, is deathless, is beyond birth and death. So we don't know that going in. It's just, it's presented as a possibility, but we don't know. And just taking it on as a concept isn't actually that helpful. It may comfort some people, but um, why settle for comfort when you can uh, know that for yourself? Have that direct full body, unquestionably real experience of what that actually is. So that's, that's the other alternative. We can take that road, but when we take that road, it's, it's not knowing, not knowing the outcome, not knowing if it's even true, right? not knowing if there's even such a thing as enlightenment. So what would cause us to, to spend all that time and energy um, going down that road without certainty? You know, one, one possibility is that we don't know why we're doing it. We just find ourselves compelled uh, to move in that direction. You know, another possibility is that, um, well, we can, we can test drive the possibility. You know, we could choose to act um, as if we knew that we could um, function from uh, spacious awareness and just try it out. Not, not it's a permanent thing, but just to sent, begin to sense, glimpse a little bit of what that might feel like. So if we were just operating in the world, or we're just talking conceptually here now, but if we were just operating the world conceptually, but we did it from the perspective of um, uh, there is one consciousness operating through all of these different various manifestations of that one source. How would I, how would I treat the other person? You know? It's all one manifestation from the same source, me as well as everything else. Um, how do I treat the earth? How do I treat the plants? How do I treat the river? How do I act? What do I do? You know, even, even approaching that conceptually, we can see that how that might um, change the way we move in the world. Um, is instructive. Um, it's not the same as actually realizing it, but it can cause us to uh, become intrigued and even motivated by that process. 
So coming back to that point is, is actually really retracing our steps back, you know, like following the breadcrumbs back, you know, seeing that along the way of, you know, through teenagehood and adulthood and maturing, you know, the, all the, what we took on in terms of, well, everything, you know, ideas about ourselves and our world and, you know, how we thought everything worked or should work. And then we just realized that all of that has been taken on as concepts in this lifetime. And what we use to pull ourselves back to start at home um, is, is that longing. That's the energy that we use. Um, and we may not even know what that longing is or where it originates from. But I'd, I'd suggest it originates from our deepest nature. You know, we, we may interpret it as, you know, a decision that we make. And, you know, I chose to, you know, seek out this spiritual path. Um, but I, I'd suggest that this longing is actually from a, a deeper place than our wanting something. Um, we may find out that, you know, what, what we, what we want as a, you know, separate individual wanting something, like I just want peace and love and joy. Um, we might find out that what that costs us is um, our sense of separateness, our sense of being a separate individual. So we might find out it's not actually to our personal advantage at all. That's what we give up. We give up this idea that what I am is separate. You know? But that, that idea is also something that we took on during this lifetime, right? You know, it's one of those things that were implied in the Garden of Eden story. Suddenly I'm separate from the other person. You know, I have something to protect, something to hide, something to defend, <laughs> something to be. So it's something that we've learned in this lifetime. And um, it's the, the movement is not to regress to some infantile state, obviously, right? But what we do is we come back to a state of grace, a state of openness, um, state of innocence. But we come back to that state with the knowledge of how the world of form works. You know, it, we can still function. We don't lose that ability to function in the world, but we can see that um, the movement to gain um, pleasure <laughs> for us as a separate self um, is not in congruence with um, what we discover the actual reality to be, that we are not separate from the other, and therefore this movement to um, dominate another person, control another person, get what we want from another person, all of that movement is um, not in accordance with what we find out to be true. So this movement back into ourself, um, 
This is the 2,500-year-old instruction from Socrates, know yourself, know thyself. Right? This movement back to know what we actually are. Um, and in that movement, back to ourselves, um, we can see that the ideas and concepts that we took on in growing up may have some relative truth to them, but they are not essentially what we are. What's this, what we are essentially can, must always be true under all circumstances. Uh, that's sort of the um, gold standard of it. Right? If it's just sometimes true and sometimes not so true, that's, that's just not it. So anything that appears within this consciousness whether it be a concept, a memory, a hope, a fear, um, belief about who we are, a judgment, all that are things that appear within a, the field of awareness. Field of awareness is prior to that, it's more fundamental to it than anything that appears. So whatever appears, it might even be bliss, it might be joy, it might, you know, wonderful states, high states, visions, still appearances within the field of awareness. The awareness is what is always true. It's not actually even a high state, it's not a state actually at all. It is what is within which all states appear, all feelings, all thoughts, all experiences, all appear within this awareness that we are. One of the metaphors for this awareness is spaciousness, um, the word that I use fairly frequently. And it's, it's not like three-dimensional space, like this, you know, the space in the universe, it's not, that kind of space, it's a metaphor. And um, the value of the metaphor is like space, um, um, where you, let's say there's the space of the room that you're in and someone brings in a um, chair into the room. You know, is there less space in the room? No, it's still the same amount of space. There's just a chair occupying, you know, being present in that space. But, you know, the chair, once it's taken out, I mean, there's still as much space as there ever was. There was never any less space. And the space is unharmed by the presence of the chair or the absence of the chair. Either way, um, all of that happens within that spaciousness. So that's the, the value of that metaphor because the awareness is exactly the same. Everything that appears within it, um, the awareness is present for it, recognizes it, witnesses it, um, and remains untouched by it. So that awareness is as pristine as the day you were born. So this movement is just back and back and back uh, to recognize what we essentially are, what we've always been. We've never been other than that. We just 
um, became fascinated with the objects rising in that awareness and forgot all about the awareness itself. So the awareness hasn't gone anywhere. It's as fully functional as it always was, but we just um, lost our ability to recognize it. So this whole movement is just um, just remembering, recognizing what has always been there. Um, we tend not to see it because um, it's hidden in most obvious of all places in that it is never absent, but it's so common, so ever present that we, we don't even notice it. It's like, you know, the uh, well-known, I think it's a Zen um, analogy where, you know, the fish is looking for water you know, looking any, everywhere. Where's this water I've heard so much about? You know, it's very much like that. We don't see it because it's so obvious. We like the obscure. The mind likes the obscure. We like the idea of um, a search, an adventure, you know, a quest. <laughs> we'll find it, I'm sure. But that's how we miss it. We miss it because we overlook what is um, closer than close more intimate than, than, than anything. It's ultimately intimate. So we can question why, why would we want to make this effort? Well, I guess, I guess one reason is that it um, answers the big question about life. And what, what is life about? Who is living this life that's living through this body? You know, what is birth and death about? You know, is, am I limited to uh, this physical form? Nothing before, nothing after? Or is there another possibility? Finding out the answers to life's deepest questions is, is the possibility. And that, you know, we can use that as sort of a personal motivation and we can, you know, go down this road of discovery thinking that we're doing it um, out, of a, out of a personal desire, a personal sense of will. Um, but what we discover is that ultimately is that it's not actually personal. It's intimate, it's not other than us, but it's not personal because it is one, it's not many, it's not many awarenesses. It's miraculous that there's even one. Out of nothing, possibility of something Anything arising out of nothingness is absolutely astonishing. So we find out that it's not actually 
about us as separate individuals, um, mainly because we are not separate individuals. We never were. We only thought we were. You know, we actually never left a state of grace. We only imagined that we did. We only had ideas that um, convinced us that we were apart from it. But in actuality, we, we never were. But that statement isn't of much use if our sense of it is that, yes, I am. I feel separate. I feel uh, alienated from the world around me. So this coming home, so it's been described um, by some people as uh, having come home after a long, arduous journey, sitting in your most comfortable chair and putting your feet up in front of the fire, being warmed by the fire and by God's love. So that's, that's what we come home to by whatever name you want to call that. So this journey is the fulfillment of um, that quest, that journey back to where we never left. State of grace, that awareness um, has always been present always throughout the entire life, never been absent. You've never had a single experience that didn't happen within your awareness. <laughs> 